Alison. Hi, Sarah. And a happy new year to you. We're back after a bit of a break. Are you glad to be back? Oh, sure. But I mean, it's still quite a slog to get anywhere here in Paris these days, especially with the ongoing transit strike. Yeah, which is now in its fifth historic week. It's become the longest rail and metro strike since the 1980s. And it's all about pensions. Negotiations, or should I say discussions between unions and government representatives started up again this week, but that both positions on both sides are quite dug in. Right. So so basically, President Emmanuel Macron wants to completely shake up the system. It's currently a public pension system called pay as you go. It means that people who are working today are paying into the system that pays out for those retiring today. Yeah, there are very few private pension schemes in France. It must be said, almost all of it is public. Yeah. So any reform of the public pension system really pretty much concerns everybody. It's hard to think of something else that would affect so many people. Or indeed, that is quite so complex. Yeah, because as we keep hearing, there are all these different schemes. There are actually 42 of them. Many of these special schemes, special regimes are in the public sector, and they all have different retirement ages, even different payouts. There's a regime, for example, for train drivers. That's one we hear an awful lot about. There's one for the military. There's one for police. And there's been a lot of attention on them because they can often retire early, for example. But, yeah, but these special regimes actually represent only about 6% of pensioners overall. Yeah, yeah. Most of us are in what's called the general regime of the 17 million people who received a pension in France in 2017. Uh, just over 14 million were from the general regime. And the government wants to put everyone into a universal system, the same for everyone, based on French principles of solidarité and égalité or equality. Yeah, so it's this point-based system. It would take into account every hour worked. Also, there's a minimum pension for those who work Workful careers. It all sounds pretty good. Yeah, 1,000 euros a month as a minimum pension. Um, except there are already exceptions. Since the transport strikes kicked off back in early December, the government started promising concessions to some sectors uh, where jobs are physically very demanding, such as firefighters, prison guards and soldiers. They've all been told they'll be allowed to get early retirement, as will uh, ballet dancers at the Paris Opera. That's something which has received loads of media attention around the world. But of of course, we are only talking about a few dozen people. Yeah, a few dozen people in a grand scheme of things. But it's all very complicated. And, and those striking, um, particularly, it must be said, those professions that are self-funded pension schemes like lawyers and doctors who are in France independent workers, they don't like this reform. No, and the far-left CGT union, that's the one that's been spearheading uh, strike action, is demanding the government abandon the whole reform, full stop. Other more moderate unions like the CFDT want changes to the reform. But the average working person, they're a bit less clear. I met a few of them on the streets of Paris. How concerned do you feel about the government's pension reform? I am working in the bank. I am 43 and uh, I am impacted because my uh, pension will be calculated by points in uh, 2025. How will your pension be affected? My pension will go down because of the point system. I think the actual system is not fair, but I think that the new one will not be fair either. <laughs> I feel as if I will lose out, both as a nurse and as a woman who took time off to have children, but also things are just not clear. It's complicated. I do feel concerned, but at the same time, 
there are very little information going around. People are saying this and that, and it's very hard to make up your mind as to how it's really going to affect each of us. And the other reason also is a lot of people don't believe anymore that they're going to have any pension at all. I don't feel concerned because I think I'm too young to be concerned because in some years I think they will change a lot the system of retirement and I don't think I will be concerned by this reform. How old are you now? 36. So it's not worrying you for the moment? No, no. And I think we will not have pension in the future because all the generation will consume all the budget. So you have a mixed bag there of people who don't believe they're going to get a pension, who are indifferent to it. Um, though it is interesting to note that while the support for the strike is a bit lower than when it started in December, the very latest poll shows that 58% of French people are still sympathetic or supportive of the strike. Yeah, despite the mess it's made with people spending hours getting to work or having to juggle childcare when schools are closed. So you've got to ask yourself, why are people putting up with all this? And I think it's interesting to look back historically. The pension system runs quite deep in France. This pay-as-you-go system, funded by contributions from employees, employers that everyone has access to, this was part of the construction of, I guess you could call the French social state after the Second World War. Yeah, the social security system, it included health insurance, welfare, unemployment benefits. Yeah, and so there have been reforms, of course, to the pension system over the years, um, but the basis of this system, this redistributive model, has remained. Economist Anne Edu is quite critical of the current reform, and it must be said she's on the left of the political spectrum, quite critical of it all. Um, I spoke with her about the pensions, and she told me that what exists, of course, is not perfect, and of course it does need to adapt as people get older, but she questions the motivations of this reform. Of course, the aging of the population uh, calls for adapting pension rules. And in general, uh, we have also to uh, recognize that past pension reforms and the current one, of course, aim at reducing the expenditure of the system, while they should in many cases provide for an increase of its revenue. Aging people will represent a larger share of the population, so it should be normal that they receive a larger share of the GDP. But this is, of course, not what the ongoing reform is doing, because it aims at maintaining the share of the GDP dedicated to elderly people. Which is about 14% in France, I believe. Yeah. Yeah. So the political discourse consists in saying that uh, people who are on strike protect their specific scheme, but actually the the reform will concern everybody and it will reduce the pension for everyone because it programs the maintenance of the share of GDP dedicated to a wider number of persons. So the idea is you have the same, they want to keep the same amount of money in the system for an increased number of people using yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. It's not only a playing with the pensionable age, uh, which is of course one of the points, it also intends to be uh, changing the logic of the system. The French pay-as-you-go pension system is annuity-based. What does that mean? That means that the, the pension is based on the best years 
of work, uh, 25 best years in the private sector, six last month for civil servants. It allows for uh, leaving apart the worst years, so it really helps people who have had precarious periods of integration into the labor market and so on, not to be penalized by these bad years. And the pension reforms aims at transforming this annuity-based system in a point-based system. The objective is equal pension for equal career, equal pay. So you hear that, it, it, it seems like it would make sense. Yeah, it looks like equality, but of course careers and pay are, are not equal. So it will reflect inequalities instead of diminishing it at pension age. So, for instance, as far as gender equality is concerned, the actual annuity-based system only partly reduces gender inequality, so it's not a perfect system. But a point-based system would not reduce it at all. So this point-based system is you get a certain amount of points for the number of hours or days or weeks yeah. you've worked, and that gets translated into a number at, so at pension age. will count. It is still a pay-as-you-go pension system, but the difference is that it will exactly reflect pay and career inequalities. And this will penalize people with a precarious period and so on, and especially women, of course. And another part of it too, and and this is what a lot of the strikers are bringing up, is this fear that that we are being pushed into individual savings because the reform provides for incentive to use uh, savings and and to invest in pension funds. In France, uh, many people know that pension funds are risky investments because we have the experience of the 2008 crisis that touched uh, pension funds. And all over the world. Yeah, yeah, all over the world. So I guess French people are not very confident in pension funds, except those who are very wealthy and can constitute a portfolio varying risks and so on. And so going to the strike over this yeah. reform, surveys show that despite five weeks of strike and lots of disruption in people's lives, people are still pretty much, and even maybe even more suspicious of what's going on in this reform. Where is that coming from? I think we have uh, been through many, many neoliberal reforms in France, like labor market reforms, unemployment insurance reform, and there is an accumulation of reform that people do not want. Before the pension reform, we, we have to keep in mind that there was the gilets jaunes, yellow vest movement. People pointing out all different inequalities and problems with the French yeah, system. Yeah. We, we also have experience of past reform that have already cut pension, that have increased inequalities, and, and this one is probably harder than where past reforms. The other thing I find interesting is that when you talk to people and you see surveys is a lot of people do think there needs to be a reform. Like there yeah. seems to be an agreement that the system is very complicated. We probably do need to work a bit longer, whatever it is. The basic premise of a reform 
most people would probably agree with it. Yeah, yeah, sure. I mean, I think nobody could uh, say that there, there is no need for a reform. And of course, the difficulty is to agree <laughs> on a, a good reform, but um, this reform does not make consensus. Can we speculate? You've, you've presented it as a neoliberal reform faced with a social system. Which one will prevail? I don't know. If we give the keys to a neoliberal state, we do not know what will happen. Unknown. Exactly. That's what it is, isn't it? And Emmanuel Macron has been quite silent on all of this, aside from presenting his general wish to overhaul the system and talking about it a bit on New Year's Eve. Yeah, yeah. And there's still many gray areas over what the system will actually look like with these points. It's not even clear what a point will be worth. No, what is a point? Indeed. And we're talking about the long term because this reform won't start coming into effect until at the very earliest 2025, maybe even 2037. And at that point, potentially Michael may not even be present. <laughs> Quite possibly. So why go to all this bother? Why upset all these people? What's more, there was no pressing financial need to do it, as we understand. Yeah, well, some economists say, yeah, we're not necessarily in the red, and that's not the issue. Um, you could say that maybe Macron is trying to really change the culture, trying to change mm. the way French people think about work, um, encouraging us to change careers more often, have more flexibility, working longer. Yes, this flexi-security thing, mm. this Scandinavian model that he holds so dear. In any case, we'll have to see what gets through in the end. The reform proposals will be put before ministers on the 22nd of January, then debated in the French Parliament at the end of February. Unions are vowing to fight it to the bitter end. The strikes are almost certainly not over for the moment. The only thing we can be sure about is that there's confusion. So let's shift now from points to dots. Six dots, Sarah, can make a big difference if you're blind, as is the case for some 61,000 people in France. This is the six-dot reading system known as Braille. So it's named after the inventor, uh, Louis Braille, 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 sounds kind of French. Yeah, he was born near Paris 211 years ago this week on the 4th of January 1809. He died on the 6th of January 1852 when he was just 43. Those anniversary dates give us a good reason to remember just what a remarkable man he was and in fact a remarkable child because he developed this Braille system when he was still a teenager. All right, so the system is an alphabet, right, with this combination of six dots. The different combinations give you 63 signs in all, so that gives you all the letters of the alphabet, plus letters with accents, so important in French, punctuation marks, numbers, and some mathematical signs. So blind people can literally read these dots with their fingertips. So how did the young Louis Braille come up to develop all this? Well, his father was a leatherer, and one day when he was just three, he was playing around in his dad's workshop. He tried to copy his father and started puncturing or trying to puncture a piece of leather with a tool but the tool slipped and stabbed him in the eye he got an infection and by the age of five poor louis was completely blind Ooh, so personal necessity i guess pushed him to figure something out yeah his dad made him a cane his brother taught him echolocation where you can tap on objects to to judge distances his mum taught him to play dominoes
dominoes by counting the dots with his fingertips. So he had all this stimulation. He went to regular school and he did very well. But he was really frustrated that there weren't any books for blind children. Uh, he managed to get accepted to the Royal Institute for the Blind in Paris when he was not even 10. And there he got hold of what was called a book for the blind. Oh, what he was looking for. Yeah, great. Except it turned out to be just this huge raised letters on cardboard. So you could trace them with your fingers, but every sentence took up about half a page. Yeah, kind of hard to read anything of substance there. Totally. And then he heard about this French army captain, Charles Barbier, who in 1815 had invented a way of transcribing sounds using dots. It's called sonographie in French. In English, it's called night writing. Barbier had just imagined that it could help soldiers to read in the dark. So Braille learned to read these patterns and then to write them by punching the dots into cardboard with a sharp instrument. A uh, sharp instrument, maybe like the tool that injured him in the first place. Yeah, you could say at least it perhaps served some some useful purpose, but he realized there were limitations to this system because even a short message required a huge number of dots. He reached out to Barbier to see if maybe he was interested in collaborating on improving the system. The captain wasn't, so 13-year-old Louis Braille plowed on alone and he devised a system where dots represent letters rather than sounds. And he ended up publishing his first text in Braille in 1829 when he was 19. So does Braille only work for French then? No, many languages around the world have adapted some form of Braille, uh, whether it's using the Latin alphabet or even Cyrillic. And it's not just used for reading and writing. Braille adapted it for music as well. Oh, cool. So Braille today, though, I imagine must be getting replaced a bit with electronics. Indeed, people are using Braille less and less. You've got audiobooks, of course, which are increasingly popular, and you've got smartphones, which mean you can dictate your messages and they can also read back to you what's on a screen. There are also now electronic readers with little plastic knobs that go up and down with each line of text, but to use them, uh, you still have to be able to read Braille. And so if you want the independence of reading yourself rather than letting some electronic voice do it for you, then Louis Braille writing system created nearly 200 years ago is still relevant and it also happens to be the work of a child genius driven by his own disability. So another anniversary, but this one's a good deal closer to home physically and in time. On January 7th, five years ago this week, two men, radicalized Islamists, attacked the offices of Charlie Hebdo, a satirical magazine here, killing 12 people, including eight journalists. Charlie had published a series of cartoons uh, just before satirizing the Prophet Muhammad and the attackers, the Kwachi brothers. Uh, who had rallied to the cause of Islamic State armed group, made the magazine pay a very heavy price. And there were actually three days of violence. There was a manhunt for the brothers and then a deadly hostage-taking at a kosher supermarket in Paris a couple days later. It, it shook France to the core, you remember, Sarah. People poured onto the streets of Paris in this big show of solidarity. Initially, it was about defending freedom of expression, which, as we know, is one of France's core values. Yeah, on January 11, 2015, there was a huge national unity rally up to four million people marched across the country I remember going there with my daughter I wanted to show her that after all the brutality of the attacks that people could 
still be nice to one another. Not everyone was a, you know, a, a terrorist in the making. I remember taking a photo of her when she was just six and she was standing next to someone wearing a T-shirt which read, where there is hate, we will show love. Yeah, there was this real sense of solidarity. There were vigils, I remember, uh, at République, particularly in Paris, the plaza, outpourings of messages. There was that slogan, Je suis Charlie, I am Charlie. So you hear that slogan there, Nous sommes Charlie, we are Charlie. That, that, that feeling, though, kind of slipped away. Yeah, politics gradually took over. Some people started talking about how there maybe hadn't been that many Muslims on the march, on the, on the rally, the Solidarity rally, that the We Are Charlie slogan somehow didn't count after all. Some people criticized Charlie Hebdo, the paper itself, for, for showing disrespect to the Prophet Muhammad, that it had been deliberately provocative of, of France's more devout Muslim population. And that raised all kinds of questions about the limits of blasphemy, about the limits of freedom of expression. Although today, even the current editor of Charlie Hebdo, Gérard Billard, wonders if those questions are still there. Il y a toujours beaucoup de gens qui qui sont Charlie, mais je sais pas. Moi personnellement, je sais pas ce que ça veut dire. Je sais ce que ça veut dire pour moi. There are still many people who say I am Charlie. He says, but I don't, I don't know what they mean. I know what it means to me personally. For some, it's the freedom of expression. For others, it's the freedom to laugh at whoever you want. But what bothers me is that for the last five years, it's been evoked, but not always with the best intentions. So, yeah, that was the editor of Charlie Hebdo. Today, the paper itself is still around. Ironically, like many people, Sarah, I discovered the magazine itself when the extremists tried to kill it off. At the time of the attack, it had been losing, you know, a, a lot of readers from its height in the 1970s. It kind of felt a bit old-fashioned. And... Yeah, exactly. Sometimes it was a wee bit sexist. Mm. Um, and then suddenly, after the attack, everyone, including me, was buying it to show solidarity. Yeah, there was this sense that, yeah, whether not you liked it, you should support it yeah. no matter what. Um, Philippe Lanson was a columnist for Charlie Hebdo. He was injured during the attack. And he says that the attackers had actually aimed to shut them down. Leur idée, comme ils l'ont dit en sortant des locaux, c'était on a tué Charlie. He says here that as the attackers left the building, they said we killed Charlie, Charlie Hebdo, not the people, but the paper itself. But he says here they didn't actually kill it. It's still living with its memories, contradictions for a while longer. Sales have dipped down again after that initial frenzy. The paper has an almost entirely new team and it's much younger than before. This week's special fifth anniversary edition doesn't, and that comes as no surprise, feature the Prophet Muhammad. In Instead, it takes a swipe at what it calls new censorships and new dictatorships imposed by what it calls the gurus of political correctness and monolithic thinking. The front cover shows a man lying down with his huge tongue pinned to the floor by a smartphone with the logos of social media. Hmm, new times, new targets. Au rythme de la vie, je marche ma douleur et je marche Charlie. And this song, Comme un seul homme, was written by French singer M in the immediate aftermath of the killings in tribute to Charlie Hebdo. And that brings us to the end of Spotlight on France this week. The program was mixed by Nicolas Doro. If you enjoyed it, well, why not subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or you can drop us a line. Spotlight.france at rfi.fr. See you next week. Bye-bye. <laughs>
Il est nous sommes à l'unisson Comme un soir dans mes pensées Comme un cri dans la ville, à bout portant Charlie.